to the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. Have you ever wondered how people succeed in real estate and what steps they took to get there? If so, this podcast is for you. Your hosts, Sayla and Eileen Prack, interview top experts in the real estate community to share with you their real estate journey and how they achieved massive success. Our goal is to provide you with valuable real estate resources and to help you apply it to your own real estate goals. Thank you, everyone, for joining today's episode of the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. I am your host, Saila Prak. Today's guest, we had Robert Beardsley. Robert oversees acquisitions and capital markets for the Lone Star Capital Group and has acquired over $100 million of multifamily real estate. He has evaluated thousands of opportunities using proprietary underwriting models and published the number one book on multifamily underwriting, the definitive guide to underwriting multifamily acquisitions. He has written over 50 articles about underwriting, deal structure, and capital markets and hosts the Capital Spotlight podcast, which is focused on interviewing institutional investors. Roberts also helps run Green Oaks Capital, his family's real estate investment and advisory firm. Welcome to the show, Robert. Thanks for having me on. Can you please share a little bit about your background and how did you get started with real estate? Yeah, absolutely. So I actually grew up in a real estate family ever since I was young. My my parents ran their residential brokerage firm from home. And they, so they both worked from home. And so I was constantly hearing their phone calls, constantly learning about their business and, and learning more about real estate than I ever really thought I did know. You know, it just, it kind of took it for granted. So I kind of grew up with that real estate background, but... Also, given the fact that I grew up in Silicon Valley, there was a lot of emphasis on technology and startups. And so I actually went to school for computer science, but then circled back to real estate and, you know, had to get back involved in in that business. And that's where I eventually started my own real estate company after working with my, my parents for some time. And that's now Lone Star Capital. Got it. So when you first start get into the real estate investing business. Did you start as a single family? So how, how did you get started? Or can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Yeah, so my family's background has been in the single family space, whether it be from a sales, you know, brokerage side or flips, development, construction, everything was on the single family side. So when I got involved in the business, I was doing my research and I saw, you know, I, I found multifamily, researched about that and just realized that it was so much more scalable and a better fit for my goals. And it's interesting because, you know, it took my younger self and younger, more kind of ambitious mind to push my parents actually to open their minds to the multifamily as well, right? They had been doing single family for 30 years. And so it was very hard. They thought, oh, multifamily, what is that? Or that's for the big, that's for the big people. We can't do that. And so it took my kind of just ambitious and didn't know any better to say, hey, we should be doing multifamily. So for me, I jumped right into the multifamily business. So you went to school and got your computer science degree. And did you go into the W2 job at all? Or did you actually like went straight to real estate investing? Yeah, I went straight into real estate investing from school. I actually didn't even graduate. I Halfway through school, I was starting my business and, and spending so much time on my business that I took a leave of absence to start my, you know, continue working on my business and, and, uh, you know, focus on the real estate side. So never got the full, you know, aside from internships, never got the full W2 experience. Would you be able to talk a little bit about your first multifamily investing, your first deal and give a little bit more details and how did you get your, your first deal? Yeah, absolutely. So our first deal, there's, you know, there's kind of a few first. So one of the ways that we started actually was by partnering with a sponsor that was going to be the lead sponsor who had identified the opportunity, put it under contract, 
and they were seeking partners to help raise capital. So that's a great way to get started because we were able to get more exposure into the business and but yet not have to be responsible for all of the the whole deal, right? We could just focus on raising capital, build our track record and gain that experience. So that was one way that we started. But then the next deal, we did it actually completely on our own. And, you know, it was our deal that we put under contract. We put up the the risk money, the earnest money deposit to put under contract. So that was a very stressful time as we, at that point, had a, had a clock ticking and we had to go out and raise a lot of money. And, you know, so, so many things that we learned focusing on the capital raising side, raising money is a lot harder than you think, especially when you're kind of having the capital conversations. But that's a big difference between actually raising the money. And so we learned that and uh, had to go through that experience, which I think is a, is a great experience to go through. But it's, it is not you know, necessarily the best idea to, to always be risking a lot of money in terms of going hard on your deposit. But nevertheless, kind of when you burn your bridges and go for it, it makes you stronger and you build your network just by necessity. So that was one thing that we learned. Another thing we learned is, and this is something actually that my dad used to say all the time in his previous business is time moves very slow when you're out of contract. And then as soon as you get under contract, Time moves very quickly and you need to do as much as you can before going under contract to prepare for that period. Because once you get under contract, there's so many things happening. You need to line up the loan, provide all the due diligence, do your own due diligence, raise the capital, structure the deal, finalize the business plan. And so as much of that stuff that you can do upfront in anticipation, that will really help you a ton. So one of the things that you do for the multifamily space and before you're actually putting a deal under contract is definitely underwriting process and making sure that the deal is the right one for you. Would you be able to provide or share some of the criteria or things that you look at in terms of underwriting with our listeners? Yeah. So underwriting is a, a very big topic of mine, something that I am love to talk about, love to think about. So for, for underwriting, you need to, one of the things that I would recommend is understanding return requirements based on different business plans and levels of risk. You know, you can't just look at every deal with the same lens or with the same return requirements, right? Because if a deal is in a great location and it's a newer property and, you know, it's fully occupied, you can't sign that type of property, the same return profile as a deal that's, you know, in a small market, older property, high vacancy, you know, they're just different deals and they need different return profiles. So something that we do in our businesses is is we actually have a table created and that we look at and update internally, which assigns return metrics based on a deal's location, business plan type and quality of construction or, you know, vintage, right? If it's a 2005 property, that says a lot about it and is superior typically to a 1975 construction property. So that's something that's very important, you know, understanding what your return hurdles are, because that's what you're using to determine whether something is a good deal or not. Thank you for sharing that information. And do you use uh, any specific uh, financial models template or do you actually build it yourself from scratch? Yeah. So what we use internally is our own underwriting model that I actually built over a few years and, and many different iterations and edits, updates, throwing it away, rebuilding it. So it's it's been a long time coming and, and something that 
because we've used it over and over again, you know, underwriting over a thousand deals, it's really been, we understand the ins and outs of it and it's been grooved to, to be exactly how we want. And I think that's very powerful. Whether you build your own or use someone else's, just getting those repetitions and, and underwriting so many deals is what's going to provide you that confidence and that more nuanced understanding. So how did you get that skill set and what did you do to, to come to build everything else from scratch for you? And uh, you definitely probably underwriting probably thousands, thousands of deals so far. And, you know, like, how do you create your own from scratch? Yeah. So, I mean, I've always been numbers. I've always had a, you know, a brain for numbers. And so I kind of came from that computer science background. And I, when I started in the multifamily business, I gravitated towards the underwriting side because it fit my skill set and what I'm interested in. And so it was kind of a natural fit for me to, to get started and start analyzing deals in that way. And so what I did is I just, I downloaded as many underwriting models as I could get my hands on just to get as much exposure and understanding of how all the different models are calculating certain things. And I would pick the best pieces of each model and then say, okay, well, I like how they're doing that. I'm going to steal that and start incorporating that into my own. And so that's what I always do. And I still do that to this day. When I see a new model that I think is really interesting, I you know study it and see if there's anything that I can take from it to improve my own model. So I'm always looking to, to update and improve. So you know how you take a couple of years to master your your own underwriting models and why, at what point did you start writing a book, The Definite Tip Guide to Underwriting Multifamily Acquisition? Isn't that giving you out your secret away? That's a great question. So when I started learning underwriting, I, I figured that a book would already exist like this, you know, something that's very straightforward book that would give you the step-by-step process of underwriting and, and give you the the rules of thumb and guidelines for each and every input. But I, I did my research, nothing like that existed. So that was confusing to me. And so as I was learning, I told myself, well, once you have this all figured out and you've built out the whole process, you're going to write a book that's going to provide that and fill that gap in the market because there's such a big need for it. You know, people would call me all the time and say, oh, I love your model and you, you know all this stuff. How can I learn it too? What book can I read or what book did you use? And I say, I, there, there was nothing. I, I can't really recommend anything. And so that's really why I wanted to write the book. And in terms of kind of the secret sauce and giving it away, I really don't believe in a secret sauce for underwriting. I really think that underwriting can be pretty straightforward and it really should be accessible to all people. You know, I don't want people to think that underwriting is just for really smart people or really real estate experts. Not It's neither of that. It's it's anybody who wants to learn, whether they're an active investor or a passive investor, they can absolutely learn to underwrite proficiently and have the confidence that the deal that they're looking at, you know, they really do understand it and they understand the numbers, they understand the risk. So I think that's much more valuable. You know, real estate is more of a collaborative business than a competitive business. You know, we're all partners. And so, you know, whenever you're doing a deal and you're sharing the information with partners, you have to share your underwriting. And so to say, oh, I can't share my underwriting with you. It's my secret sauce. You know, I think that is just not very fair. Yeah, on behalf of our listeners, just want to thank you for sharing that and writing that book. And it definitely is going to help a lot of people out there. So you mentioned about risk. What are some of the risks in today's market, especially with the uncertainty, with the COVID going on, with the new presidents coming on? And what's uh, some of the risks that you you would recommend to making sure that we not overlook when it comes to underwriting. Right. So there's there's many risks in the market today, as you mentioned. And kind of the, the, the biggest overarching risk today is, is uh, valuation. 
So, you know, prices are very high and they've stayed very high through COVID. And, you know, that means cap rates are low, but at the same time, we have very low interest rates all across the world. Any type of interest rate that you look at, whether it's the U.S. 10-year treasury or LIBOR, rates are very low. And so, you know, kind of a very big macro risk is an increase in rates. I personally, you know, and, and not many people think that that's a near-term risk. You know, rates are supposed to stay low for the next three years, potentially, or longer even, but that kind of is the overarching backdrop of risk today where, where you know, valuations are so high in part because of the global search for yield and, and you know, low interest rates. So what that means is you have to be really aware of your basis. And what that means is you're really the price that you're buying at. It's not enough to just be buying a good deal or a good deal because it has, let's say, okay cash flow, you know, because you could still potentially pay too much for a property and your basis is too high. But because you have a really low interest rate, you know, the cash flow might be okay. So one of the main or something that's very important to, to consider today is you can't just be searching for good cash flow, you have to be also searching for good basis. And good basis can be, you know, price per square foot, price per unit. And that can really protect you from any adverse changes in the market. Thank you for sharing all those risks. And I want to go back and talk a little bit about the sponsor side. Is there any strategy that makes today's market that you recommend for the sponsors? Should they like reducing their asset management fees or look at different types of uh, deal structures? Is there any recommendation that you have for our uh, for the sponsors out there? Yeah. So today, some of the interesting dynamics happening today, one would be the debt markets. So especially when COVID hit, bridge loans became very expensive and just not as competitive from a proceeds perspective. And so it really just made a whole lot more sense to be doing permanent financing, specifically with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And now, you know, today it's, we're in November. And so bridge loans have come in in pricing, so they've gotten more competitive, but it's still really hard to find a property and a business plan for that property that justifies the added cost and risk of a bridge loan. So the whole ton of people are pursuing deals with bridge loans today, but I would say, you know, you have to be very cautious and that you make sure that the deal absolutely justifies the bridge loan risk. Similarly, even if you are doing permanent debt, 10-year money, if you have a value-add plan and you're trying to get, you know, 14, 15, 16% returns, you have to really question that whether your business plan of raising rents 20% and, and spending all this money and effort on the value add plan, is it actually worth it for the return you're getting? Because in today's market, it might be you might be able to buy a deal that's stabilized and there's not really much work to do, not much execution risk, and you can get a similar return. So it's just a question of, you know, is that incremental risk is that risk worth that incremental return? And, and, and often it's not, but it's a really big challenge for sponsors because sponsors need to show good investors, show good mm -hmm. returns for their investors. So it's a very delicate balance. Yeah, definitely. And thank you for sharing all that insights. And I want to go back and talk a little bit about when you first started. You mentioned that your first deal, you partner with another sponsors and you focusing on capital raising at a time to get into your first multifamily space. At what point did you decide to start your own company, the Lone Star Company? Yeah, so we had you know, really already started it because we had the idea that we of where we wanted to go. We wanted to be a lead sponsor. We wanted to be buying our own deals, managing our own deals and, and building up the business that way. But as I said before, a great way to start for many people is to start on the capital raising side because you know they can limit their responsibilities to that piece of the business. 
yet they can get exposure to, to the whole business. And they can, when you're raising capital, you're really forced to, to learn a lot. And when, you, when did you start the company? Three years ago. Three years ago. And within three years, you guys were able to scale up to $100 million of acquisition. Yet, will you be able to share what were the challenges along the way in order to scale up to that level so quickly? And how did you say, overcome those? Yeah, I would say the biggest challenge is, is on the equity side. You can figure out how to underwrite. It doesn't take that long. You can figure out what market that you want to be in and kind of build out that process, building out your team. You know, none of that takes years, right? You can build out your team, learn to underwrite, get into a groove, you know, pretty much in six months. But the hard part is really the equity side, building those relationships. Relationships don't happen overnight. And so building the trust over multiple deals, you know, it's going to take some time as you, let's say you have your first deal and you're going to present it to an investor. They might pass on it. And but they might appreciate reviewing that deal with you and kind of building the relationship by looking at that deal with you. So then when you show them the next one, it's a better chance that they're actually going to invest. So that takes a lot longer to build up. So that's been always a big challenge. And so one of the ways to overcome that challenge is just by partnering with people that have more experience, that have more of those relationships already in place. So another thing's on your website, I noticed there is a preferred equity. Will you be able to provide a little bit more detail what that is to our listeners and how does that work? Yeah, so preferred equity is our our strategy of providing equity to other sponsors as they're looking to acquire or recapitalize their their assets. So the way preferred equity works is it straddles the line between debt and equity. And so when we provide preferred equity to a sponsor, we're providing debt-like equity. So the preferred equity gets paid first out of cash flow after the lender's paid. And then on a, on a sale or a refi, our preferred equity is also paid first. So, but in exchange for this preferential treatment, we earn a fixed rate of return. And that leaves 100% of the upside to the sponsor and his or her common equity. So that's the the trade-off that we're looking to make in our preferred equity strategy is we're looking to make a fixed rate of return, but focus on downside protection through seniority in the capital structure and rights and control rights and remedies. So what is your company's focus when a sponsor bringing you a deals? And what are you guys looking at, looking for in order to for you guys to jump into that preferred equity strategy with that sponsor? Yeah. So we look at we look at pretty much every deal that a sponsor brings us for the preferred equity side. And we underwrite the deal pretty much just like we would underwrite it if we were going to acquire it ourselves. But the difference is is, is the kind of the metrics that we focus on. So when it's a preferred equity deal, we're going to be focusing on our our sizing of the position. So, you know, for example, if there's $2 million of equity in the deal and we're going to put in $1.8 million of preferred equity, there's really no point there because there's no equity cushion in terms of the preferred equity and the common equity. So a lot of time has to be spent sizing the preferred equity to the right size, to the right amount. And so our standard maximum there is 85% of cost. So the way that works is if if a sponsor brings us a deal that has a $9 million purchase price and let's say a million dollars of CapEx, that would be $10 million of cost. And we could fund up to 85% of that. So if the senior loan is, let's say, $7 million, we could fund from that seven up to $8.5 million, representing that 85% of cost number. So we would be providing $1.5 million there. So that's one metric of focus when a sponsor brings us the deal is you know, the, the right size. And then 
it's not enough just to get that size right. We also have to know that the cash flow is there. So then we look at the DSCR or the debt service coverage ratio. And so this is exactly the same way that a lender looks at deals as well, right? A lender is going to underwrite the NOI and then they're going to compare that to the senior debt's amortized debt service. And so the NOI divided by amortized debt service is DSCR. And the same thing, we do the same thing on the preferred equity side as we look at, we add in our preferred equity payment that we are owed every year. And we compare that with, you know, plus the senior and we say, okay, what's the NOI divided by the senior plus pref payment combination. Uh, and then that's how we look at the different DSCR metrics for our preferred equity. Wow. So that, that's a great strategy for, for you guys to, to come up with and able it's not just like uh, how also helping with the, uh, with the sponsors and like bringing the deals and partnership together and uh, bring a deal moving forward and make it work for and win-win for everybody. So Rob, you already scaled up to $100 million for your companies and you already wrote a book and you have a podcast. That's really amazing. So what is next for you? Well, I'm really excited and looking forward to writing my next book. I I already know the topic and I'm planning on releasing it in August of 2021. Haven't started writing it yet though. So it's it's going to be uh, off to the races soon. So I'm excited about that. Otherwise, you know, we're excited just to continue to grow our business, both on the principal side, as well as the preferred equity side. Well, I can't wait to check out your next books once it's ready. Please keep us posted. So how has real estate investing impacted your life so far? Well, I'm always very, uh, you know, purpose driven and focused. And so it's, you know, it's really great that I've been so fortunate especially at a young age to find a career path that really compels me, consumes me and makes me want to to work at it every single day. So I'd say it's not that, uh, you know, on the one hand, it's great to be able to, to, to love your work and, and work really hard. And then on the other hand, it's great that the type of business that I have set up is one that I have flexibility in terms of where I am. So I love to travel. So that's, I'm very fortunate to be able to pretty much work from anywhere and, you know, fly and visit properties. And uh, yeah, so I, I really appreciate that flexibility. What is one thing that you know now about real estate that you wish you knew when you first started? It's really, it's really funny because when I first started, I, I didn't want to write a book or write articles or do podcasts or do any of that stuff. I thought that stuff was, was a waste of time. And so I'm really glad that I changed my mind and started doing all that stuff because that has really helped me build relationships, grow my business. And those are two very important things. So yeah, I would say I wish I would have started that sooner. What is one thing that set the successful people apart in the real estate investing business? Hmm. I would say what sets people apart in the real estate investing business. Well, there's a few things. So number one would be going back to our discussion on, on kind of the marketing slash equity. You know, that's really important. And it's kind of like if you are doing great things, but nobody knows about it, then it's, it's not going to help you. So making sure that you're out there building many relationships, however you choose to do that, whether that's through LinkedIn or conferences or meetups, building relationships is absolutely key. And I think that's a big differentiator. What tools or techniques have you used to improve the efficiency of your business or personal life? Well, I'm I'm a very goal-driven person. I love goal setting. And so I'm constantly setting goals as well as writing my goals. So I try to write my goals down almost every day. And those can be the same goals, or sometimes I'll think of new ones. But I think doing that just keeps that top of mind and allows me to think of how do I achieve those goals? I may write a goal down and then I might think of a, of a way 
to get me closer to that goal. And so that's less of a productivity thing and more so of like a, like a strategy and a vision thing. Because I always like to say, it's not only important to do things well, you actually have to do the, the right things well. So it's, it's important that you're doing the right things. So, you know, I think when you goal set, it kind of puts your vision in front of you and allows you to actually understand, okay, is what I'm doing you know, the right thing? Rob, thank you so much for coming on to our shows today to share your knowledge and your wisdoms on underwriting risk, your company, your journeys and tips and tricks that you learn along the way with our with us and also our listeners. So we really appreciate your time. So if our listener wants to find out about you, your companies and what you do, where can they go? Yeah, so you can learn more about everything that I'm up to on my uh, website, robbeardsley.me. And on that website, you can find out more about the book that I wrote that we discussed, as well as you can get a free download of the underwriting model that we in our business use every single day. Awesome. Thank you so much, Rob, for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. And thank you for listening to our podcast today, brought to you by Bonavest Capital. We would really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook, How Did They Do It Real Estate. We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to bonavestcapital.com and fill out the contact us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.